Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dice Exploder. Each week, we take a tabletop RPG mechanic and secretly judge it after it's left the room. My name is Sam Donawald, and my co-host this week is Alex Roberts. Alex is a superstar. She's probably best known for Starcross, a two-player game of forbidden love that uses a Jenga tower, and which just funded an expansion, Starcross Love Letters, last fall. Check it out, Bully Pulpit Games. I think of Alex first as the designer of For the Queen, a devilishly simple game that always delivers a quality story and is my go-to for introducing new players to the hobby, and which has a handsome new edition coming May 14th from Darrington Press. Alex was also the host of Backstory, for my money, the best RPG interview podcast of its time, which ended several years ago, but which you can still comb through the archives of for tons of great interviews and lessons on design. Apparently, introducing Alex is an exercise in me recommending all my favorite RPG things. It's a treat to have her on the show. Alex brought in Pity Points from Kagamatsu by Danielle Lewan, an old story game from the aughts set in Sengoku period Japan. In the game, one player, who must be a woman according to the rules, plays as Kagamatsu, a wandering samurai. Everyone else plays as women of a village that's facing some kind of threat and each of them works to romance Kagamatsu in hopes of convincing him to save the village. Kagamatsu, after every scene, bequeaths to that scene's suitor either a point of love or a point of pity. It's delicious. This episode is what I always dreamed Dice Exploder could be. We start from a simple game mechanic, but we get into power dynamics at the table in the past and the future, how people treat you when you're disabled, cultural appropriation, my personal techniques for flirting, details of a new game Alex is working on, and, of course, what is the true nature of love. Happy day after Valentine's Day. Before we jump in, note that Kagamatsu has been taken out of print by its creators, and there's no easy way to obtain a copy of it. Because of that, we try to be more thorough than usual in our explanations of the mechanics so you can follow along. Okay, here is Alex Roberts with Pity Points from Kagamatsu. Alex Roberts, thanks so much for being on Dice Exploder. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I cannot wait to talk about some sexy samurai with you. (laughs) So yeah, tell us about Kagamatsu. Sure. So Kagamatsu is a game from, I want to say 2009 that I think was in development long before that, that is about wandering Ronin, who comes upon a village that is in some way kind of helpless or defenseless to a periodic or returning or ominous threat. It takes place in the Sengoku era of Japan. So the idea is that all the able-bodied men and people who could use a sword are off dying in the Shogun's Wars. And so for basically the townswomen of this village, who are left behind, try to steer the ronin from his wandering course and convince him to help them. And so something that the townswomen players are trying to do is basically acquire love. Like love is a bunch of points. There are love points in this game. You can get a high score in love. Yes, you can finally. (laughs) Just like in real life. (laughs) But the mechanic that I'm actually so fascinated by is pity, because those are different points that can be handed out by the Kagamatsu player instead of love, kind of Uh as that player chooses. And much like contempt tokens in the quiet year, I think it's easy to explain that as, yeah, they don't don't do anything, right? Or they don't have any mechanical impact, or Uh they seem to not do anything, and yet they actually do a lot. And so, I mean, I could talk about quiet year for an hour too, but basically (laughs) I'm very interested in mechanics that quote unquote don't do anything that don't get involved in any calc that are 
like sort of quantifiable, I guess, but don't yeah. enter into any calculation at any point. I'm just totally fascinated by that. Yeah. All right. So I can't wait to ask you about that, but I want to get into like the nuts and bolts of how do love and pity points work? How yes. are they handed out? Just to establish that up front. So scenes in this game involve the townswoman deciding on an affection that they are trying to get from Kagamatsu. And these range from a stolen glance all the way up to a roll in the hay. Or there's a secret in the middle or whatever. Mm. And so you know in the scene what the townswoman is trying to get from Kagamatsu. And you kind of role play out the scene. And then at some point you make a role that we won't get into the details of to determine whether the woman wins that affection or not. And then at the end of the scene, Kagamatsu decides whether to either give the townswoman a point of love or a point of pity. And he also keeps these totals secret from all the townswomen. So they're running totals throughout the course of the game. And then at the end of the game, pity, as we said, doesn't quote unquote do anything. (laughs) But Kagamatsu's highest amount of love with a townswoman is used to determine his strength when going up against whatever problem the town is dealing with. Yes, I think that's a pretty good summary. I mean, basically, there are a bunch of affections. The townswoman player kind of calls their shot at the beginning of their Mm -hmm. scene. And they're like, okay, in this one, I'm going for a shared moment, a touch, a gift, a kiss or whatever. And the last one, the one that is the most difficult to get is a promise made. And so the odds of this game ending in tragedy, like in either Kagamatsu just walking away or Kagamatsu going up against the thing and failing are really high, which is one of my favorite things about it. And yeah, ultimately, the townswomen never know what their love score is because they know which things they succeeded at. Yeah. But that only tells them their highest potential love, because in every single one of those cases, Kagamatsu could have noted a point of pity. And on this very yeah. physical level, too, like if you're at the table with people, you see the Kagamatsu player make a little mark on their paper. So, yeah. you know, like something happened. But but yeah, you never know how much love or pity happens until, you know, of course, the end of the game. What is it? It's such a... I played this just yesterday, mm-hmm. and... We're all playing over Discord. We have our cameras on. And the way that we were playing was whichever townswoman was in the scene would turn their camera on, but everyone else would turn their cameras off. Nice. And this was just not something we like intended. It just sort of accidentally happened. But so there would always be a moment between scenes where all the townswomen will have turned their cameras off and the full screen was just Kagamatsu's player writing on a physical piece of paper and going, Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and it was everyone. All of us were just like, <laughs> like yeah. what's what's happening there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's exactly as you say. Mm-hmm. And I am now thinking about all the times where I have looked down at my little paper and gone, mm-hmm, and watched people at a table just like sweating, <laughs> panicking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the other rule that sort of hangs over this whole game is that Kagamatsu must be played by a woman. Mm -hmm. This game was published in 2009. But I feel like that the game at large is so interested in power dynamics, right? In, In these relationships. And love and pity, I think, play right into that. Like love and pity are power dynamics. Yes, absolutely. And so this is a game that is that I think engages with power in a really interesting way. It is extremely 2009. 
in the way it's designed, in the way that it looks, in the people who are involved, everything about it. And like as someone who was playing RPGs at that time, I I don't think I played with another woman or non-binary person until like mid to late 2010s, if I had to guess. So yeah, so when I first got into indie RPGs, I was used to just being the only woman at the table. And that was always whether or not anyone wanted it to be or whether or not it was written anywhere. That's a yeah. dynamic. That's, that's something yeah. that is happening, right? That has an impact on play. And I mean, the obvious power dynamic that we talk about when we talk about role-playing games is the GM to player power differential. And I think all of us probably have had really bad experiences with the poor mm. use of that power differential, right? This sort of, mm -hmm. this joke maybe, or frequent just bad time of the GM who's power tripping, right? Who's taking advantage of the power differential to do things that they would not otherwise really sort of have social permission to do. And yeah. I think there's an equally common joke of the players sort of exerting power in this kind of like thumbing your nose at authority way, right? The perpetual meme of like, oh, I'm the GM and I created this amazing world and this fascinating story for my players, but then they just wanted to talk to Scrungle, the elf yeah. who was supposed to be in there for yeah. five minutes. Oh God, you know, or I, I planned this huge encounter and then my players just wanted to shop and play dress up for four hours. Yeah. And that joke says a lot, right? That this power is there and that people have different ways of kind of poking at it, playing with it. And so I think a lot of what has happened in RPG design is figuring out GMless games or figuring mm -hmm. out ways to in some way distribute power in a, a more yeah. kind of equal way. The other game that I'm going to be mentioning a lot is The Quiet Year, Avery Alder's The Quiet Year, which distributes power right in that way. It doesn't have yeah. a game master. And I think her game Dream Askew does that in an even more interesting way where they're basically the GM's role is broken down into a couple of different things that you do. And then everyone gets a piece of that. So there isn't no GM. It's more like everyone is part of a GM. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. A GM, but only over the digital world or whatever. exactly. Or, you know, only over the outcome of this or the outcome of that or saying what this is. So yeah, I think that's really interesting, but I am all, kind of far more fascinated by games that take that power dynamic and try to see how far you can push it and still have yeah. fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, the game I, I've, if anyone's ever talked to me about games in person, they've heard my paranoia rant, right? Paranoia is this amazing piece of satire, it, you know, comes out in the, uh, I'm trying to think, 80s or 90s that, you know, this yeah. this period of time that where people, I guess, were just starting to feel the sting of the misuse of GM power <laughs> and sort of sets up this whole thing where like, knowing the rules is against the rules. Everything is against the rules. The players are constantly sinning against the all-powerful friend computer that is hostile to you in every way. And you can be killed with a wave of the GM's hand and the GM is pitting yeah. you all against each other. And it it exaggerates that power dynamic in a way that is like very funny and I think very fun to play. And I think very kinky, but that's a separate discussion. And so Kagematsu also plays with that power dynamic in a way that I think is really interesting. And that is not exactly about exaggerating nor equalizing it. It is trying to like offer that power to someone who normally doesn't get it. Yes, right? yes, yes. And this is 
downright difficult to explain if you haven't been playing role playing <laughs> games for very long. But uh -huh. you know, there was some interesting research on like business meetings around this time that I got interested hmm. in reading. Just about like who gets listened to, who's who speaks up more and less often, who gets listened to. You know, yeah. the the bit about like oh, I you know I said something, but eventually a man near me said it louder, so the suggestion was yeah. accepted. And the thing is, all of that played out to some degree or another at the gaming table. And obviously in a better group, it was a lot less often. And I, I mm -hmm. was playing with wonderful, wonderful people who were very like conscious of that and would actively kind of seek out contributions from players who were not speaking up as often or, you know, try to compensate for that dynamic. And so mm -hmm. Kagamatsu is this way of compensating for that dynamic to the nth degree. And I have this physical copy of Kagamatsu, because my buddy Patrick, who really introduced me to role-playing games other than D&D, really like put it in my hands and was like, hey, our group wants to play this. If we're going to do it, you're going to have to GM it. It says so here in the rules. Yeah. And my group did the same thing with My Life with Master, which is, again, a different tangent that I, I GM'd for different but similar reasons. But I was very shy about GMing, and mm. I was very nervous to... I was less experienced and I was younger than other people in the group. And, you know, probably gender was a factor. Probably. Gender is definitely a factor in who decides that they can GM or not. L yeah. Let me put that there, actually, explicitly. And so there was actually something really beautiful in just being told, like, well, we all want to play this game. Alex, you yourself thinks it's super cool. So if you want, if we want to play it, you're going to have to run it. Yeah. And I became absolutely addicted to running it. <laughs> And I ran it for our group and I ran it for some other friends and I ran it so many times at game conventions. And because it, it facilitated a power dynamic that was, again, very different from what I'd experienced at the table yeah. before. It was very interesting to me. And also, that's not just me being like, oh, it's fun to have power over people. I really saw a different side of a lot of my players when they mm. were asked not just to play women, but to play people who had to convince someone else to do things and who yeah. were powerless to do certain things themselves and had to do so in a way that called upon their own ideas about what is lovable, what is cute or yeah. what is sexy or what is compelling or like what would elicit the love of another person. And that's not something that I normally, yeah, it was, it was just a new side of people that I, that not very many, I think, to this day, role-playing games really elicit in an interesting way. And yeah, it was something that that just kind of hooked me. Yeah. Yeah. I have like three responses mm -hmm. to the thing that you just said. <laughs> I would say a couple of them. Mm -hmm. But the first is like, what a gift to have a game give you a push into GMing yeah. with a rule that says you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like the, yeah. the game the game having that bit of like power to encourage people who are maybe nervous about the idea but also maybe excited about it mm -hmm. to give it a try i think there's something really lovely in that yeah and i'm still a little self-conscious as a gm and i want to encourage other people to try gming or to you know or to to play outside their comfort mm -hmm. zone in some way or to i don't know when i play with really shy players and i'm i'm just like how can i get out your delicious, amazing, beautiful ideas because yeah. the people who speak louder don't necessarily have better ideas, my friend. So I, but I, um, I don't know. I've, I don't know how else to like, so, so sternly yet invitingly elicit the first time GM 
anyway, I have very half-baked thoughts about that, and I, I wish I could do it. But yeah, sorry, that was the first thing. You had two more things. Yeah. So you mentioned the way that this game sort of opened up a new side in a lot of your players. Mm -hmm. And something that I really noticed in myself as I was playing it was that I learned something about the way that I flirt, mm -hmm. right? That like, there's this old story that my partner loves to tell about. We were in college, not together. She's directing this play that I'm in. And in the play, I am playing the brother of the lead, and both of us are interested in the same woman. Mm -hmm. And we are in this scene and rehearsing it and doing a terrible job flirting with this woman. Just absolute dog shit job <laughs> portraying flirting. And finally, my partner breaks down and she's just like, guys, 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 how do you flirt in real life? And he's like, I talk very loudly. <laughs> and I like, I stand too close and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I stand on the other side of the room and I'm very respectful. And like, and like, I saw there was a halfway through this game, you know, it's my, I've been with my partner for like 11 years mm -hmm. now, you know, it's, it's, I have not done a lot of flirting since. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment in this game where I was like, I'm standing on the other side of the room and being respectful right now. Like that is the uh -huh. way that I, I try to make myself appealing to people. And it was in that process, I also sort of noticed, I felt like this was a really great game for introducing people to the idea of role-playing romance in mm -hmm. RPGs. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, it's sort of actually a series of duet games kind of layered on top of each other. Like the townswomen so don't have a lot of interaction, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that they don't influence each other because Kagamatsu is sort of looking for differences between the women, right? Like if I take out a really strong flirty stance, I'm kind of going to be the flirty one. And like mm -hmm. maybe the other women are going to be less so, right? But it's still not, I'm not doing scenes with the other townswomen. And that makes it, I think, easier to kind of step back and watch your friends like do the romance thing and be like, okay, I can get comfortable doing that. We can all do that. But it's also by virtue of its setup it is like ostensibly a game about romance but you alluded to this earlier this was like maybe the third thing i wanted to talk about is how this isn't actually a romance game if you don't want it to be yes. like none yes. of the people yes. in this game have to be interested in all of them could be genuinely interested in romance all of these characters could be yeah but like also, if you are Kagamatsu just sort of like taking pity on these women and like helping out the town because it's the right thing to do and you're like, you know, a, a gay guy, mm. like that works. <laughs> and if you are a townswoman who is just like, I'm going to use the weapons in my arsenal, like pity and sexuality to like get the job done for the town, that also completely works. And I think that's so fascinating and helpful for coming into romance games for the first time. Yes, absolutely. I think a great way to explore romance in games is to have another option. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to, to have yeah. the option to not. That makes it easier to to approach. And, and you know, sexuality as well. And uh, so, I mean, speaking of seeing a different side of people, like I played this game once with someone who I'd never gamed with before, kind of a friend of a friend. And he sits down to the table and, and we're all making our characters. And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, my character's uh, 14 years old. And Oof. I I, I I don't think we had the X card back then. I would have X carded it. But I was kind of like, 
okay, let me hear this guy out. And he ended up being, I think he was my most loved because wow. he played this character that was like, that needed Kagematsu, wanted Kagematsu's love so bad. And it was truly in like a purely like parental way. Like mm. I had this deeply, deeply paternal love for this kid. And obviously she was like an orphan and her dad had died in the war. And there were, you know, obviously like Kagamatsu as this Ronin reminded her of her dad in certain ways. And like, she was really like grieving her parents in a way that I think um, that first of all, like really walked that love and pity line in an interesting way, yeah. but was, was so sincerely lovable in a way that, that did not in any way kind of have to touch on, on romance or sexuality. And yeah. that's, really interesting to me. And it's not any more or less kind of easy or helped by the game than the players who I've had where they're like, time to seduce Kagamatsu. Yeah. Like, that's what <laughs> I'm going to do. And I, I, I love both approaches. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more specifically about like the love and pity mm. mechanic at sort yeah. of a, a deeper level. Like, I, I'm curious... If you have thoughts on what it says that in this game, the only two responses to courtship for Kagamatsu are love and pity. <laughs> so what I would say is, because again, right, it's not about developing a romantic relationship, although that could be yeah. one of the many strategies I guess you take, that the townswomen are trying to get something from someone and because mm -hmm. they don't have riches and they don't have, you know, physical power over this other person, the way for them to get what they want is to be loved. And so mm -hmm. when you are in a position where you are trying to get people to help you without making them feel like you are just trying to get them to help you, that can result in pity or yeah. it can result in I mean, people have a lot of different definitions of love, but to me, that is a commitment to the well-being and flourishing of the other person yeah, and like a lived and active commitment to that. And so that's, that's what happens. And it's something that for various reasons, a lot of disempowered people in it, and I think for specific reasons in under patriarchy, a lot of women kind of have to do that. Well, I can't really do this, you know, because they're the person with the access to power. I need some man yeah. to do it. But if he knows that I'm just trying to get him to do it, oh. either he will be angry or feel bad for me. And I think something absolutely essential that this game conveys through its mechanics is that pity does not motivate actions that actually support the well-being of the other person. Love does, and pity mm -hmm. does not, which is important. <laughs> and I agree with I wait, can you go deeper on that? Because first, just a, a bit of context from where I'm coming mm. from is the game of this I played yesterday. We had this really interesting ending where a townswoman who we later learned had only pity <laughs> managed to secure the promise what? from Kagamatsu. Like she had just achieved a lot of successes mm. even but like the successes yielded pity you know mm -hmm. and then at the end she just rolled a little bit lucky and got there and so it was like pity was her weapon oh. you know like was the yeah, thing that yeah. had drawn this guy in and then like a different person had 
maximum love. That yeah. was me. Like I, I had <laughs> maximum love. Uh -huh. And then I failed to, I had previously failed to secure the promise. Mm. And so we had this interesting dynamic of like the person with all the love was instrumental in Kagamatsu fighting the trouble yes. and then failing and it, he died. It was very sad. Amazing. Um, but the person with all the pity was instrumental in like getting him to agree to do so in the first place. <laughs> and I, I loved it as this like dichotomy of like two weapons, like, you know, again, weapon is such a like wrong word, but mm -hmm. like two different strategies achieved different ends, both of which like were needed to actually have a chance of, of solving the problem at hand. Oh, that's so interesting. We've, we've had profoundly different experiences because I, <laughs> I genuinely don't know like numerically how it would be possible because of the way, I, I guess it depends on how many dice she would have been able to roll because the the way that sort of success works in the game right is like yeah you take the result and then you minus okay so here's another thing about this game being from 2009 <laughs> is yeah. that i have never been able to play it without checking the rule book multiple times and doing at least one <laughs> thing wrong <laughs> i can explain the dice roll having done it yesterday if that would be helpful okay go for it so when a woman is going for a particular affection, that affection has associated with it either charm or innocence, which are the women's two stats. And it also has associated with it a difficulty number. And the women roll a number of dice equal to their charm or innocence, whatever is relevant. And Kagamatsu rolls a number of dice equal to the difficulty number. And there's a little bit of funniness on like sixes, whatever. I'm going to skip that part. But basically, you just like add up the totals on both sides dice. And whoever got higher, like if the woman got higher, she gets the affection she was going for. And if Kagamatsu gets higher, uh, she does not. And then there are two things that can get added onto this. The first is that Kagamatsu's love for that woman is subtracted from his role. So the more he loves the woman, the easier it is for her to extract an affection from him. And also, if she fails on a role, she can use a desperation, which are things that you sort of gradually accumulate from previous successes. Like you can blackmail Kagamatsu as a desperation, or you can accuse him of impropriety or whatever the specific ones are that you have unlocked. And when you use a desperation, you like bring it into the scene in some sort of role play way. And then you get one extra die to your role as a woman when you do that. And so... What had happened in our case here with the guy playing this woman who had all this pity was that Kagamatsu just got a bad role. And then, you know, he didn't have like a lot of charm or innocence, but he had achieved a lot of desperations. And so mm. he just like used all the desperations. <laughs> it, he was so desperate. So he rolled a ton oh, of dice God. and like got there. And it was this like profoundly sad kind of seed of just like, wow, this guy, like she really needs this. And like Kagamatsu does not love this woman. He only feels bad for her. And the, the, the more desperate she gets, the more that feels true. Right, right. Okay, thank you. That, that was a very thorough and well-phrased explanation. And I've been thumbing through my copy here. And God, it, I think there's a chance that I, because I really insist that like either they failed the role and they failed and they get nothing. Or yeah. if they succeeded in the role, they get either love or pity. Yeah. But actually, Kagamatsu can award those based entirely 
on how the Kagamatsu player feels. And yeah. it's only if they succeeded that they get to try for more affections on the scene. Anyway, yes. it's finicky. It's fussy. But the point is, yeah. <laughs> the point <laughs> is that, like, again, you can acquire the promise, but, like, pity isn't going to work for Kagamatsu to save the town. Yeah. If everyone only had pity, then Kagamatsu has nothing fueling him when he goes up against the trouble, right? Like, you might extract the, yeah, uh, the promise from so, him to but, fight uh, it, <laughs> but, like, he doesn't, he doesn't have it in his heart, you know? Yes. Like, he doesn't care about anyone here, and yeah. so he's not going to do a good job. Yes. Yes, like, truly. And I think it's important, again, because someone being kind of helpless can elicit care or can elicit... Mm -hmm. I don't know, sympathy or pity or whatever you want to talk, however you, yeah. you want to phrase that, like pity creates distance between people, right? Mm. In the same way that love brings them together. And I, I, I don't know how common people's sort of experience of this is, but like, I think we, we've got a whole kind of note in here about love and pity and disability. And like, yeah. as someone who needs help with things that not everyone needs help with, it, it has been, it's an interesting experience to, to kind of just need help. And I, on a certain level, like, you know, I've been in a position where like, I need someone to get that off the shelf for me, or I need this yeah. to happen, or I need this, whatever. And on a certain level, it's like, I don't care why you do it. But my experience is that like, the people who, who love you, I mean, either as you know, that individual relationship, or that's how they feel about people it's a spiritual commitment whatever it is yeah um people who are acting from a place of love will be genuinely and very thoroughly committed to like oh your your needs should be met yeah as where the the experience of someone just kind of feeling bad for you elicits very little if anything of what you actually need yeah i mean i i used a wheelchair for quite a while and the difference between like the person who's like oh hey you need that or oh let me grab the door for you and the person who just comes up and is like Oh, what happened? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, need, yeah. Need I say more? Right. That that. I mean, explains it, itself. Gosh, I, I, like you describing all that. I'm thinking about how much of my own relationship to disability mm. is about avoiding that feeling. About yes. like how. Yes. Like, you know, as much as uh, Kagamatsu shows us that you can use pity as a weapon against the person pitying you, I have constructed my life with invisible disability mm. in particular to, like, avoid people doing that to me yeah. because it feels like shit. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't yeah, want people I, to feel bad for me is a very common yeah. refrain. And I think, again, like this idea of, well, if someone feels bad for me enough, they might do maybe this one specific thing, but the social yeah. toll and the psychic toll will be so incredibly yeah. high. And also, it does not, it it's, um, doesn't last the way that love does, right? Yeah. Like may, maybe yeah. someone will do a specific thing because they feel bad, but it, A, is very qualitatively different from someone doing it out of love. And B, the yeah. person who loves you will actually be sort of committed in a longer term way to helping you get your needs met, right? In the way that that, yeah. that you are committed to helping them. Well, I think pity in some ways is a selfish emotion on the act of the pityer. Yes. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You agree. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it is, I think, often 
the woman who is saying that to you when you are using your wheelchair、mm. is saying it because she is glad that she is not where you are, <laughs> rather、yes. than having any、yeah. sort of care for you,、yeah. genuinely. And pity is a way to create distance. Like、yes. that, that creates distance. And again, sometimes the act of doing something "quote unquote" nice for someone, or that they have asked for help with, or for whatever, it, again, it can be the thing that they want. But it is a way to create distance, and it is a way to maybe you know absolve your guilt, right? Oh, this person needs、yeah. this. Oh, I'll give it to them, and then、uh, oh my god, I feel so bad, huh? And、yeah. then it's like a white person who went to the movie about slavery, and <laughs> now we don't have to feel bad about slavery because、yes. they solved it at the end of the movie,、oh、right? Oh my god,、like、yes, there is a whole. God, there is just a ah the industry for that, you know, for like, well,、yeah. I read the book I was supposed to read because I felt so、yeah. bad about the racism, and now I think you'll find、yeah. I have created enough distance that I feel like I'm fine, <laughs> right? Like, like this idea of like absolution,、yeah. right? The pity motivated act absolves someone、yeah. of guilt, and therefore it stops. It sort of clears the.、Uh, I don't know. There's like a there's a financial metaphor I'm trying to make here, right? It, like, okay, now we're even. You got me、yeah. to do something because、yeah. I felt bad for you. But now I did it,、yep. so we're even, and I don't have to engage with you any further. I don't have to engage with you, and I don't have to feel bad. Yes, and on like I can sleep at night because、yeah. I did the、thing. I did the thing.、Yeah. I did the thing.、Yeah. And again, on this purely practical level, like I know people who like work for certain charities or are doing certain good work, where it's like, yeah, if you just gave me money because you feel bad, or if you gave me money for some other reason, I don't really care. I'm trying to run this、yeah. important operation, yeah, doing yeah. good work, but. But yeah, again, love is sustainable. That that was this woman in the game last night,、yeah. right? Like, I don't give a shit if you really love me. I just need you to save my fucking town. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that again, that emphasizes the distance between them. That creates a relationship that is transactional, right? Yeah, I have yeah. induced some guilt. If you wish to ameliorate your guilt, you can、uh, do something for、yeah. me, and then we're square, and you can leave.、Yeah. As where, again, like I think. Framing pity and love as these opposed things says a lot about pity, but it also says a lot about love and what love really、yeah. is, which is which is a reciprocal relationship, and which、yeah. is non-transactional fundamentally. That、yeah. I do things because I love you, and you do things because you love me, and、yeah. therefore it's a reciprocal. We both, you know, prioritize each other's well-being, but there is no sense and there is no desire that at some point. Our commitments will be fulfilled, and we'll be back to、yeah. zero. We will have resolved, the, you know, whatever we owe each other, whatever, and we're we're back to neutral. And like, yeah, you know, when you love someone, you look for ways to help them, and that doesn't mean you empty your cup completely and destroy yourself for the sake of them, right? But and I, this is hopefully not. <laughs> well, I mean, this is also like the difference between acting out of love and acting out of a complete lack of love for yourself, and so you try to justify yeah, your existence. Yeah. Anyway, I'm a therapist when I'm a, not a game designer, but I won't get into it. <laughs> it yeah, just that like it's also like self love, right? Yeah. Loving oneself means prioritizing one's well being. It doesn't mean doing that necessarily over any other particular person or constantly giving yourself everything you want. But it does mean like, oh, but I I do love myself, so I will do my best to prioritize. Me being okay, <laughs> me、yeah. being, being well,、yeah. and and yeah, in that sense, like again, coming back to this fact that oh, there are different kinds of love. Now I almost want to say the exact opposite, which is there are different kinds of relationships. There are romantic、yeah. relationships and paternal relationships and friendships and admiration, you know, mentorships, whatever. But ultimately, like the love, the. 
like love is just love. Like the actually there are different yeah. relationships, but love is just what it is. And so again, like thinking about this 14 year old orphan who just wanted his protection so bad to love that person was to take care of her and look out for her and be reliable and all of these other things, right? Loving a child is different than loving an adult, is different than loving your own parent, is different than loving your romantic partner, is different than acting with love towards someone who you maybe just know for a very brief period of time. <laughs> like yeah. I truly believe that the way that you love a, a hookup and the way that you love your partner who you've been with for 50 years those relationships are really different, but I think like the definition of love remains the same. Like that kind of priority. The expressions feel different. Yeah. But the the core yeah. feels very similar. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mystery, magic, other surreal worlds. Get to know a game through actual play with actual people role-playing characters and their stories. Watch videos of tabletop role-playing games on Madeline Colley on YouTube. This episode of Dice Exploder is brought to you by Mythworks and their jam-packed spring lineup of new release tabletop RPGs. The Wild Sea, Storm and Root by Felix Isaacs, the first expansion to any award-winning The Wild Sea, a weird fantasy tabletop role-playing game set in a rampant ocean of verdant green. Slug Blaster, Game of the Year edition by Mikey Hamm, is a hardcover boxed set reprint of the award-winning game about kick-flipping over a quantum centipede. And finally, The Last Caravan by Ted Bushman, a Cars and Aliens RPG that will take you on a cinematic road trip full of heart and drama across a post-alien invasion North America. Find these titles and more wherever you find indie RPGs or at myth.works. So another thing I wanted to make sure we talked about was the, you brought this up like right away, the idea of naming the negative space in a game, like naming mechanics that don't quote unquote do anything. Yeah. Like it's easy to imagine a version of this game where instead of Kagamatsu handing out a love point or a pity point, he either hands out a love point or does not. Mm -hmm. And the naming of the option to not hand out a love point as pity opens up all of the discussion we have had today, yeah. right? Yeah. Just by giving name to like an absence. Mm -hmm. And I find that really beautiful and compelling. I don't know that I have more to say about it oh, or what to ask about it, but I totally, just wanted to put it out there. That's fine because I have, a, I have an infinite well of things to say about it. Good, um, good. Go on, go on. Um, I think lots of people have said some version of this, but Graham Walmsley, in his most recent newsletter, you should subscribe to Graham's newsletter, you know, just wrote this thing called What Do Dice Do? And it's yeah. really, oh, oh my God, did you so read it? Good. Oh my God, yeah. so good. <laughs> so so good. good, like just nice little diagrams and everything. And he talks about, like, here are many of the things that dice can do and the way in which they represent a kind of fork in the road, right, in, of a story. And yeah. one thing that he really emphasizes is that if the fork in the road, right, is between the thing you want to happen happens and nothing happens, like either a thing happens or it doesn't, yeah. then that's not very compelling. You want to have multiple options that are at least at the bare minimum, something, something happens. Yeah. And ideally, those things that happen should be interesting and they should be different every time, you know, and they should fit the yeah, themes of yeah. the game and so on, right? And so that's the thing that separates this from 
the equally fascinating contempt tokens from the quiet year, where the contempt tokens are kind of spontaneous. You just put them out there when when you feel the need to. And so they're they're like unprompted. And there's just this way of sort of making visible the contempt that is building up in the community. Yeah. And everyone can see them and look at them. And you have to sort of acknowledge that. As where the pity points are hidden, you don't actually ever know how many uh, pity points you have or you never know when Kagamatsu is assigning love or pity. But knowing that they are there, the concept of the pity point the threat of the <laughs> threat, the terror of the pity point, <laughs> yeah. right? Means that you, something is always happening. That you know, again, dice are rolled, and either you succeed or fail, and then also either you have acquired the love that you want, or you have acquired pity. And the difference between that and you've gotten love or you didn't, right? Yeah. Like the game would just be so much less compelling if it was either like, well, Kagamatsu looks at you and he's filled with love, or he goes, eh. No, yeah. Not really doing it for me. It. Yeah, hey, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> oh, wh- yeah. sorry, babe. What'd you say? I was I was playing Smash. Like, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's <laughs> the lack of response. <laughs> it's not interesting. Uh, and so yeah. it's it's this thing that is not visible in the way that contempt is, but it is like this haunting specter. It is this quantum thing over the game. And and in a yeah. way, like it informs, I think. Kagamatsu's play because you really look and you see how much pity you have for each character and and that I think informs how you engage with them when when it's like the pity yeah. is visible in front of you but even as an invisible thing it is the other thing that can happen and it makes failure more interesting and it is the yeah it is making sure that the dice always do something that there is no neutral response and that in fact like and that the other option is pity. Like, I think this would be, again, I think this would be a much less effective, interesting game if it was just love or nothing. I think it would yeah. be a totally different game if it was like love or anger. That's a profoundly yeah. different game. Or love or... I um, wrote that down in my notes. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. And, and the thing is, that is another thing that can happen when people get the sense that you are trying to manipulate them, right? That you are trying yeah. to get them to do something is they can get angry. And I think that would add a powerfully different dimension to this game. Yes. That, you know, some someone else can explore, but I'm, I'm not interested in it. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. Yeah. And so it explicitly says, if you're not getting love, you're getting pity. And that changes the way that you play. It amplifies the power differential between Kagamatsu and the players so yes. much, so much. It is not just your GM that you can kind of taunt and tease and and ignore the plans of and mm-hmm. sort of lash out mm-hmm. as. It is someone who <laughs> you never know exactly where you stand with. And so you're doing your best. Yeah. But also, if you're really obviously doing your best, then he's just going to feel bad for you because you look so yeah. desperate. Yeah. Yeah. What an uncomfortable position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Must be bad. Must be awful. There was <laughs> something that my Kagamatsu yesterday said as we were debriefing about the game, was that it felt cruel to give pity. Mm. And that because pity and love are not transparent to the townswomen, that it it was not clear to the townswomen that that cruelty was happening as it was happening. And that that felt powerful and also sad, I think, mm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to ask you, as someone who has played as Kagamatsu, what the experience for you is like of 
handing out pity and love tokens? It feels bad, definitely. It it pity doesn't feel good. And mm. I will say that this mechanic again, it's very very explicit that this is based on your personal reaction to the scene. It's almost yeah. like something you are more like acknowledging than deciding. And so it like because it's really based on that, it's just like you kind of have to be honest with yourself about how you feel and what that evoked yeah. in you. And again, you have no particular incentive. You're not really against the players. You have no particular incentive to give one or the other. And so you kind of just have to like be honest with yourself. And I think the fact that it is hidden from the other player allows you to do that. I think it would be a totally different move to give someone pity right in front of their face. Yeah. <laughs> and be like, you yeah, just earned no yourself kidding. a pity point. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because again, because it's a because it's a power thing. And so I think it doesn't feel good, but also it doesn't feel bad enough that you don't do it. And I think yeah. on some level, it it feels bad. And I think on some level it also feels good. I really I really just mm. do think that that there is a reason why humans go around arranging themselves in unbelievably complex whatever, read Foucault, not me. You're right, of these bizarre <laughs> power structures. And on some level, it feels good. And uh, you have to contend with that. In the same way yeah. that I will say that being a townswoman subject to love and pity and trying to win the affections and being in this like impossible position also feels good. Yeah. Yeah. It feels nice to not have the responsibility of actually making very many choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I <laughs> I didn't... I didn't think I was going to like actually quote Foucault. Okay, thankfully it's not within my <laughs> grasp, even though I'm near my bookshelf. But but Foucault in the history of sexuality, he talks about like this comparison that he makes between the doctor's office or the psychoanalyst's office and the confession booth. And mm. to a certain extent, even the like the confessions being extracted from from people in, during the Inquisition, it's the Inquisitor and, and the extraction. And he talks about how intentionally or otherwise, it does set up a situation, this perpetual obsession with confession and the confession of crimes, mm. the confession of sins, mm -hmm. the confession of your personal history and the things you're neurotic about, the confession of whatever health thing is going on with you. He's, yeah, he really says it, it sets up this feeling of this dynamic of that is in, to some degree motivated by the pleasure of seeking and of finding out and of demanding and of forcing the other person to tell the truth and of, of exerting that kind of power. and the pleasure of evading and the pleasure of confessing and making oneself vulnerable, the pleasure of yeah. dodging or giving into or whatever that demand. And, you know, in various ways, he argues that that is part of what sustains those dynamics, which is a separate argument, but, but that does exist. And that is why, you know, I really started this conversation talking about power because that yeah. is the interesting thing that Kagematsu does is instead of just saying, well, let's take the existing power dynamic that we're all familiar with and try to neutralize it. Or let's take yeah. that and crank it up to a thousand, right? Let's let's just play around. Let's see what we got. Let's do something. Let's switch this, move that around. Okay, how's this power dynamic? Yeah. How's that, how's that working yeah. for you? And, and yeah, the answer is it's it's quite interesting. And we should, I, I kind of wish we'd talk more about the fact that like I've been Kagamatsu many times, although not in a long yeah. time, I will say. But I've never been a townswoman, and you've never been a Kagamatsu. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 
You know, I, I assumed that you would have been a townswoman at some point. No. That's interesting. I think I have the excuse that no one else has ever wanted to GM it, but yeah. I, I might just not. I might just not be versed in that sense. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Mm. Cool. Do you have any questions you'd be curious to hear me answer about what it's like to play a townswoman? Oh, um, how does it feel to see your pity score at the end of the game? Huh. So... For me, I had five love and zero pity. Right. And that felt really good. Mm -hmm. I know the person who had zero love and five pity also felt really good about that because that's what he had been angling for. Right. But for me, I want the pat on the head. Yeah. And it was good to receive the pat on the head. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And, you know, <laughs> we talked about how this game brings up people's ideas about what is being flirty or what is being adorable or what is being, yeah. right, all these other things. Lovable, right? And, you know, I made a two-player game about love and it is very strict about what players do because it's about flirting and I tell I teach you how to flirt. I don't just say flirt. Yeah. I'm like increase intimacy between the two of you by doing these specific things. I have learned how to flirt from that game oh, to some extent. Thank yeah. you. That yeah. makes me really happy. But this game is just like, okay, go for it. Go for it. Do do it. Do whatever you yeah. think, you know, would, would acquire this yeah. affection. And so that I think makes it more intense and that gives it that kind of squirmy, mm -hmm. okay, I want this to work feeling that is, you know, beautiful and, and very much intended. But also... Hmm. But also that makes me wonder about what is it really like to look at the Kagamatsu player scratching their little point on their paper mm -hmm. and wondering whether or not it's pity, right? And yeah. and I wonder about what it's like to see your pity score at the end. I, I really don't know. You know, the, the moment of watching Kagamatsu make that mark is, for me, it was like, I know I did the right thing in this scene. I know I acted the way I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I know I wouldn't change anything, right? Mm -hmm. And I I know what I expect. Like, I felt something in this scene, and I'm pretty confident that that's love. Yeah. But what if it's not? What if I was wrong? Yeah. What if I felt a connection and they did not? Mm -hmm. And... The fear of that, even with all the confidence that I had after every scene, the fear of, but what if it was just me feeling that was was what came out in that moment. Yeah, which is a powerful thing and, and, and a resonant yeah. thing, I think, with people's very real lives. And, yeah. and I really think about the reverse as well of when you think, well, you know, someone's Someone's doing this or saying this because they feel bad for me. And if you find out that, no, I, I'm doing it or I'm saying it because I love you. Like yeah. that is, that's equally strong, right? In, in the other direction. Yeah. And so I wonder if yeah. people have had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, there's a lot of, of validation, I think, in confirming that you were seen the way you wanted to be seen. Oh, so true. And this is why your friend with all the pity points 
either decided early on or I would suspect decided at some point when they realized that this was kind of how it was going to go. Oh, you know what? I want to be pitied. Because as soon as you decide yeah. that, you're like, great, no problem. I'm in. Yeah, I can achieve yeah, that. Exactly. But yeah, yeah seeing, being seen the way you want to be seen, I think, is is a good way of putting it. So you want to make a robots game of this? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that smooth segue. <laughs> I do. So here's the thing is that what? for every reason that we've been talking about, this this game is very compelling. It's really interesting. And it produces a pretty unique experience but i've run it a million times but i I don't know if i'll ever run it again it's not something i would offer at a game convention Mm -hmm. it's a game that has a lot of flaws and you know a lot of it is just that it is kind of finicky and is written again in a 2009 way right it can be a little bit hard to use as a text sometimes but there's also i think a lot about the setting actually uh limits Uh, the story in many ways and there's i think it is difficult to do a good job of being a bunch of people at a table playing mostly women in sengoku era japan and in my experience of playing this with again mostly white people not exclusively but mostly Mm -hmm. is that best case scenario it sounds more like a kurosawa movie than like real life and worst case scenario it sounds like a bad anime and neither of those are real things that people have experienced. And I won't get too much into into this, partially because I, I, w- I was on the One Shot podcast a couple of years ago now, and I played this game. We had a wonderful game of it. And then I was still doing my podcast backstory at the time, and I had James Mendez Hodes on, who is a brilliant designer, brilliant writer, lovely guy, and also a, a cultural consultant. And so I had him on mostly to talk about his work, which is quite interesting. But I also was like, so uh, you heard that game. What, what did you think? And we have a more fulsome discussion than you and I can have here about like what it means for people who are not Asian to have written this Asian setting and yeah, and how that fits into the broader history of like role-playing games, which are often set in space and in fantasy mm-hmm. worlds. To then, for some reason, also be set in like Japan and China a lot, mm-hmm. and like exotification, and to what extent can you work against that? To what extent does this game, which does contain a bunch of information about life in Singapore yeah. or Japan, which is quite interesting, and like anyway, I, d- I th- there's a bunch of limitations, and also again uh, today, I, I don't think you'd publish a game where it's like, well, this role has to be played by a woman. And kind of with the assumption that everyone else at the table is a man. In fact, I I can't remember now the last time I've played (laughs) with that kind of setup, which was at the time so common. So I I think for various reasons, it's not as well suited to the current gaming milieu as it it was then. But lots of people have played with this formula in one way or another. The game is out of print. The game was published by Danielle Lewon and based on a design by Renee Knipe. And for various reasons, they have kept it out of print. And I don't know exactly why, but I mean, literally like this game that I like this, this copy contains, as far as I can tell, multiple people's dead names, like it's old and it would need yep. some work. So they have just left. It I out saw of at print. least one dead name in the credits. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. that I think is indicative of like, you know, you wouldn't just make another printing or just put the PDFs yeah. up somewhere. It needs a bit of care. And, and whether they've opted not to do that or have been like, it's whatever. I have deleted much of my own work. And I, I think every <laughs> artist reserves the right to do so. Yes. But, it, but for that and so many reasons, right, that it is this thing that is incredibly compelling 
and also very flawed. That's catnip to people who want to make things, right? Like you yeah, don't write fan fiction about is. the perfect thing. You write fan fiction yeah. about the thing that needs a little <laughs> needs a little adjustment. So there was, let me think, Kage Matsu, which oh, is basically uh-huh. kind of instead of townswomen, you have these other men. I don't know a ton about it. As far as I can tell, it's kind of like a reverse seven samurai, where instead of one guy trying to recruit seven samurais, it's like a bunch of samurais being like, yo. <laughs> Come on in, um, which is amazing. I think somewhere out there, there's like a Regency era hack of it, right? Oh, yeah. A gentleman in, in possession of a good fortune must be uh-huh. pursued by multiple women, which is obviously like a perfect spot for it. And there's probably more that I don't know of. But something that I have not been able to get out of my head for years and years and years, the time will come, is to kind of take the basis of this game and change a lot of it. And... To set it in space with robots. This is my dream. <laughs> Makes everything better. Why would it not work here too? Yeah. First yeah. of all, that's always my question. Why isn't this in space? <laughs> okay. So picture this. There's a space station that was like basically a fancy resort. And things have changed in the quadrant. It's not really a popular spot anymore. And in fact, it's become totally abandoned. The people who ran it have long since left. And they kind of just they kind of just left it and had to go somewhere else. And so it's just this lovely, beautiful, but kind of crumbling space, like an abandoned mall, maybe. But it's still full of all of the androids that were created to work in it. And they are like, A, just kind of programmed to help people have a nice time. And B, I think they can't hurt people. It is against their programming. It is impossible for them to hurt people. And so instead of Townswomen, you have those. And there is some kind of recurring threat. There is a person or maybe people who are coming periodically or are about to come who wreck shop, right? Who are like, oh, these are just robots. Mm. We can do whatever we want. And they're just kind of like looting the place or they're kicking robots around or whatever, right? That's kind of up to the players to figure out what is the extent of what these robots need protection from. But yeah, then someone comes along, a human, and Mm -hmm. the robots all kind of realize oh, this is like a nice human. This is a good human. And maybe they're like a big sort of tough bounty hunter or something, some other spacey (laughs) thing, right? Or a federation officer or something. At least all the robots think they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that the robots are like, maybe this human could protect us from these others. So again, the structure is kind of the same. The affections might be a bit different and the, you know, lots of things would be different, but that structure of these individual scenes in which the robot tries to convince the person who has the power to do what they need to do, to to do it, and somehow to do that in a way that gives them the genuine, real, enduring motivation of love, and not yeah. the empty, guilt-ridden, you know, doing the the least I possibly can motivation yeah. of pity. That's my plan. I've announced it. Now I have to do it. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> That's the gamer law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, Alex, is there anything else you want to say about Kagamatsu or pity points? I don't think so. I guess maybe I want I want everyone to think more about intangible mechanics and what they can mm-hmm. and can't do and play with them. And and also I want to, to beat the drum of playtesting, that yeah. you can figure out what math does by doing math, but yeah. you can only figure out what an intangible, how something is intangibly represented when you actually get it to the table, right, and, and play it with yeah. people. So. So yeah, I just want to encourage all the designers to like play around with this and really play around with it and see what happens when you make intangible things visible or explicit in some way. Yeah. I would add to that, it was so refreshing 
to play a game from before the time when all games were hacks of other games. <laughs> Not that, like, yeah, I yeah. love hacks of other games, yeah. you know? Like, I love the fact that Powered by the Apocalypse, like, yes. exists Oh my gosh, there. yeah, like, what, a, what a blessing. All of the stuff yeah. like that. What a gift. And also, this was just weird and different, yeah. you know? It just felt unique. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see more games coming from the depths of your heart yes <laughs> without the, the wonderful assistance of an existing framework yes and i mean then in, in again one of the things that makes this game different because you know it is from 2009 is just the fact that indie gaming truly was like a scene and was not a, yet an industry and it is an industry now yeah. and that means you have a lot of incentive to give people something that is at least building upon something that they already know how to do. Yeah. Really, really like hyper incentivized, right? To give people something that is yeah. a twist on something that they already recognize and can be comfortable with. Boy, back in those days, I mean, you were like, I don't think anyone is going to want to play this anyway. So I guess I'll just make it yeah. whatever I feel like <laughs> Yeah, and see what happens. And, yeah. And it is, of course, easier to make a twist on something and great designer training wheels. Like, yeah. I, I don't want to, like, knock that kind of design again. I Bro, love games. I literally just I said, I want to hack this game. Like, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly pro. Right. I'm in favor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're, we're all, yeah. Starcross is a hack of dread, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, I'm making for the queen hacks out here all the time. <laughs> like, we're, we get it. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for being here on Dice Explorer. Oh my gosh. Really just a joy to have you. Thank you for talking to me. This was really, really fun. Holy shit. Thanks again to Alex for being here. You can find links to For the Queen, Starcrossed, Backstory, and her newsletter in the show notes. As always, you can find me on socials at S. Donald or on the Dice Exploder Discord. Our logo was designed by Sporgery. Our theme song is Sunset Bridge by Purely Grey. And our ad music is Lily Pads by my boy, Travis Tesmer. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.